Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Lieutenant Junior Grade John Kolsch. Kolsch is a helicopter pilot serving with Helicopter Squadron 2 during the Korean War. Specifically, we're going to talk about a rescue mission that he flew on July 3rd, 1951. Now, Kolsch's story is unique for a lot of reasons, but the one that stands out to me is that this is the first helicopter pilot to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Now, I am not an aviation historian. I don't know a lot about the history of military aviation even. Um, What I will say is the Korean War is the first time that we really started to see widespread use of helicopters. Of course, today, and really starting in Vietnam, it's hard to picture our military without this equipment, without this asset, without this capability. But in 1950, in 1951, it was a new-ish technology. There were helicopters used in the Second World War, very limited use, and I want to say single digits in terms of instances that they were used in what we would consider a military capacity, something like search and rescue or even a resupply. They were not utilized how we look at helicopters today, right? In and out of the battlefield or flying over a firefight or or providing some degree of fire support or air support for troops on the ground. Even that last part isn't really coming to be during the Korean War. But by 1950, a little before that, but we're able to start utilizing this new resource by 1950, there's a better understanding of how we can use this thing. And what I think is pretty cool is what we go to immediately in the military, mind you, is search and rescue. It's saving lives. It's we can pull people off the battlefield and get them back for treatment faster. That's not to say they weren't developing weapon systems to go into these helicopters, but the first use of this new technology, this crazy technology, right? They can, they can move, take off from anywhere, land anywhere, hover, go slow over the enemy. Think of all of the uses that we have with helicopters today. And I think it's pretty cool that one of the first times we really start to utilize it heavily in combat, it's all about saving lives. It's about rescuing people, pulling down pilots that are shot behind enemy lines or moving people to a hospital environment faster to save their life. I think that's kind of neat, but that's a little bit of a, a little bit of a tangent. Nonetheless, we're going to start u- utilizing them a little heavier in the Korean War. And you can think about how incredible this must have been. For a pilot shot down during the Second World War, because that's what is going to happen here in, in Kolsch's story, a pilot shot down during the Second World War over Germany, you're not getting back. Not until the American front lines, the British front lines, or the Soviet front lines bypass the area where that POW is being held, or maybe they escape. But but generally speaking, when a pilot goes down, a pilot goes down, that's it. There's a lot that goes into that. You talk about losing a pilot who's maybe had years of training, maybe years of flying missions. It might be a leader within the organization. You're losing a lot more than the aircraft, and it's hard to replace that. We'd see that throughout conflicts. It was a big part of the Japanese military struggle later in the war. They lost so many pilots. They lost so much experience. Different reasons. It wasn't in, you know, in some of these cases, it's not like having helicopters would have resolved those issues, but this is a game changer. You're telling me if a pilot gets shot down behind enemy lines, we can fly in there, pick him up and bring him home. We lost an aircraft, but we got the pilot. That, that's an incredible change. Think about that. If you're a pilot, you know, how nice to know that your military, 
your brothers in arms can come out there in a helicopter and pick you up if you go down. Of course, if you're able to get the message back and if they can find you and so on and so on. But the Korean War is the first time that we're going to see that capability in use. And it's going to be the mission of Lieutenant Junior Grade John Kolsch and Helicopter Squadron 2 or one of the major missions of that helicopter squadron. Now, if we're going to talk about the Korean War at a high level, we need to get to July of 1951 and what's going on there. Well, I've said before the Korean War is a civil war, and I think it's worth clarifying that because when North Korea crosses the border in 1950, in June of 1950, those are two separate countries. I use the term Korean War because it was just a few years earlier that it was one Korea. You know, we drew a line. We, the international community, drew this line and said, now you have North Korea. North of the border is going to be protected, governed, um, helped by, supported by the Soviet Union and China. Remember, North Korea shares a border with China. South Korea shares a border with North Korea. It's, it's a peninsula. And then we said South Korea is going to be assisted by, rebuilt by, um, allied with kind of the Western democracies. Remember, 1950, or you know, after the Second World War in 1945, up to the start of the Korean War, we're right in the heart of the Cold War. It's really amping up, right? Western democracy versus, versus communism. And this is going to be one of the hot spots that flares up. So anyways, I've used the term civil war just because it's one Korean people. And I've, I've said the same in, in the war in Vietnam where it's one Vietnam, really. We drew a line, stick with Korea here. We drew a line and, and picked sides as an international community. But at the end of the day, it's one country. So just not, you know, it's, it's not as though there were pockets springing up all over the country. There was an actual country invading another country, but still in a sense, maybe kind of a civil war, right? When North Korea invades with the intent of unifying the Korean Peninsula on their terms, the United Nations quickly condemns the attack and sends troops into South Korea to try to repel the invaders. The United States are some of the first troops on the peninsula and are going to end up committing the majority of troops in the conflict, although there is a major international presence supporting the South Korean people and the South Korean military throughout this, throughout this war. Now, the first few months after landing in South Korea is nearly catastrophic. The U.S. and the U.N. forces are almost pushed off the peninsula. North Korea has maybe momentum is the way to say it. They're pushing south fast. They're pushing south hard, and they are running over the South Korean forces. And before long, U.S. and U.N. forces... And everybody finds themselves kind of in the southeast corner known as the Pusan perimeter around the port of Pusan. It becomes a problem eventually for North Korea because they don't have the supply lines. They don't have the logistic structure to be able to maintain an offensive that far away from their factories, from their food, from their population centers, from their communication centers. They're, you know, they have this long line essentially um, in enemy territory. South Korea hasn't fallen. They've conquered certain areas, conquered, maybe moved through. Eventually, the Americans and the UN forces start building up and before long have naval superiority, air superiority as the North Korean, at this point, simply North Korean forces are becoming overextended. And as air power starts hammering their lines and we have a maneuver around the side, landing at Incheon, kind of behind the main lines, behind the main North Korean lines. And all of a sudden, you start to see North Korea start to roll back. And for a few months, so 
June to September, everybody's kind of trapped down in the Pusan perimeter or doesn't, it is on the verge of being pushed off the peninsula. And then starting in September, we start to push back and we're pushing back and we're making a lot of progress, like a lot of progress. Not only do we push North Korea back out of South Korea, maybe that was the original aim. We'll see. They're on the run now. We continue to push and North Korea is, is moving further up into their country, starting to come up against the Chinese border. Now, I don't know that China right out the gate would have said, this is a good move, North Korea, you should invade, but they at least would have liked the idea of a unified Korean peninsula on North Korea's terms because that is a Chinese ally. I don't know that China was looking for a war on their border. I don't know that they wanted a war on their border. They certainly didn't want this potential World War III on their border, which is on everybody's mind right now as some of the largest countries in the world are within very close range. Their militaries are within close range of each other as the U.S. and U.N. move through North Korea. China says we got to put a stop to this. We're going to help out our buddies, the North Korean people, and this this force called the, the People's Volunteer Army or PVA is created within China. It's a way kind of for China to say, that's not us. We're not fighting the United States. These are all volunteers out there to uh, to assist their fellow North Koreans, their, their fellow communists. What do you want us to do? Remember, it's the Cold War. So it's kind of a, it's decades of countries finding ways to um, not be able to claim or, or have maybe a gray line between the combatants and their actual um, needs. It's the U.S. In, in Afghanistan with the Mujahideen. It's, it's the Soviets in North Vietnam helping to um, train and equip even Viet Cong North Vietnamese forces. It's what we saw throughout the Cold War and what we're seeing right here in, in North Korea with the Chinese creating the People's Volunteer Army. But the problem is that changes the war for the United States and the United Nations that were on the verge of, you know, in a vacuum, if they're just fighting North Korea, they're on the verge of a victory. In October, the People's Volunteer Army kicks off something known as the first phase offensive. And what you're going to see over the course of the next, you know, five, six months are five phases of offensives. The first phase is essentially let's stop the UN and US forces, stop them at the border. We cannot let them move move closer. That's pretty successful. It stops the US advance. Shortly thereafter, in November, you're going to see the second phase offensive. The second phase offensive is designed at a high level to push the U.S. and U.N. forces out of North Korea. The second phase offensive is going to include a battle known as the as Chosen Reservoir, one of the nastiest fights in the entire war. Pretty successful if you're China and North Korea. Phase one and phase two, pretty successful. They follow that up with what's known as phase three offensive. The phase three offensive is in December. So shortly there, I mean, towards the end of December, kind of towards the start of 1951, but it's going to be the third phase offensive. And this time now the war aims have shifted and it's going, not necessarily shifted, but evolved. They're going to push the United States and UN forces completely off the peninsula. So remember phase one, stop the U S and UN forces. Don't let them into China. Roughly phase two, push them out of North Korea. Let's at least reestablish that border. But after success on one and success on two phase three, let's get them off the peninsula entirely. And what you're going to see with phase three is the goals of North Korea. They'll shift with time, but that's kind of the peak. That, that's where they said, this is what we're going to, this is the next step. We're going to expel foreign forces, expel the UN forces. They never really move past that as a goal. And we're going to quickly find ourselves in a stalemate. Now the stalemate happens after the fifth phase offensive. But what we're going to see here from 
really from January until June. So five, six month window in here are going to be the fourth, fifth, third, or the fourth and the fifth phase offensives by the People's Volunteer Army and the North Koreans, followed by counteroffensives by the UN and US forces. And you're kind of seeing this area whittle down, right? So North Korea almost pushed all the way off South Korea. Then UN forces almost pushed all the way through North Korea. And we're kind of settling back into this middle area. And we're going to hit a stalemate come June. It's during this stalemate, during this fighting, where we see the use of air power really start to develop and start to take a larger role in the fight. Because it's becoming clear by June and July of 1951, the war has barely been going on a year, that these large movements to, you know, take North Korea maybe, might no longer be in the cards. Right now we're fighting North Korea and China. Can we really take this strip of land with China defending it without using overwhelming force? Like some advocated the use of nuclear weapons. Do we want to? No. Can China really push us off the peninsula as the United Nations and the U.S. with the level of air superiority we have in certain parts of that country? Probably not. We're reaching a stalemate. So air power is going to become important because we can, through the use of air power, still attack and destroy parts of the North Korean infrastructure to maybe start to zero in on negotiating points for whatever the end of this conflict is going to look like. Now, the bombing and aerial campaign over North Korea is brutal. It is, um, it kind of dwarfs a lot of the bombing statistics from the Second World War, and it's in a shorter window, and it's one country. It's not spread over an entire continent, for instance, but it's pretty nasty. It's, well, I don't know. I was going to say it was effective, but at the same time, uh, the fact that we still have a North and South Korea today maybe shows that it, it wasn't necessarily effective. It was effective at, at creating a lot of death and destruction. We'll say that. And one of the reasons we were able to continue to do this, one of many, many reasons that the U.S. was able to maintain these bombing campaigns was due to the search and rescue capability that we developed with these helicopters. And people like Lieutenant Junior Grade John Kolsch could go get these pilots if they were shot down, if they you know, were able to bail out of a plane and lived. He could go in and pick them up, bring them back, get another plane, missions continue. On July 3rd, 1951, so the war has been going on for about a year and we are now right in the middle of this stalemate. There's an American pilot flying a mission in North Korea. And they're shot down. They're shot down about 35 miles southwest of an area called Wonsan. 30, did I say southwest? Yeah, 35 miles southwest. If you go 35 miles southwest from Wonsan, which is on the eastern shore of North Korea, you still end up probably 20 miles inside the North Korean border. Now, when I say stalemate at this time of the war, we're not talking necessarily about World War I Western front style uh, trench warfare stalemate, but it's also not a lot better than that. You're going to see a lot of fights over the same terrain. You're going to see limited movements. So it's just not large scale movements. The U.S. at times will push into North Korea. They'll prop, you know, a couple miles in and then North Korea and China will push a little bit in South Korea. So it's kind of a back and forth over the, the uh, previous border. Either way, this mission on July 3rd, 1951, one of many, many missions is absolutely behind enemy lines. The pilot shot down and the call goes out we need a pilot to come in. We need a helicopter to come in and try to rescue this down pilot. We're going to give it a shot. Unknown at the time, 
but eventually determined, eventually found out by Kolsch once he gets there, the pilot is pretty severely burned. Um, his legs were, were pretty severely burned when he um, was shot down, in the, in the process of being shot down and, and, and evacuated and, and landed and all that. So he's wounded. He's not, not, you know, 100%. Kolsch begins this mission, he and one other guy, and they start to make the move into North Korea, but there's a problem because there's cloud cover. The cloud cover is sitting low in the mountains and where the pilot was shot down is pretty mountainous terrain. They know they're going to have to go in there, but he's not on a mountain peak. He's kind of towards the valley. So to get in there, you're going to have to drop in underneath the cloud cover. You know, we have different types of technology today that might assist with this, but in 1951, they didn't. 1951, they couldn't fly at night. 1951, they were pretty... 1951, these helicopters weren't armed. How about that? Puts a little different context on these search missions. What it means is that they're heavily reliant upon the use of air support from other aircraft. Those, those were exclusively fixed-wing aircraft at the time. What you would have is fixed-wing aircraft providing support. They might come in on gun runs. They might drop bombs. They would do whatever they could to keep the enemy at bay, distract the enemy, and destroy anti-aircraft sites. So those helicopters, unarmed and slow, could come in, land, pick up the casualty, or pick up the pilot, whatever it might be, and get out of there. There's a problem with this cloud cover. Kolsch has to get beneath the cloud cover to be able to find the pilot, right? He doesn't know exactly where he is. But the minute he goes beneath that cloud cover, these fixed wings aircraft, they can't do that. There's not enough room down there to be effective. So there's this barrier between the helicopter that has no, you know, no offensive or really even defensive capabilities. They can fly away. That's their defense. And the fixed wing support that they are relying upon. Because of that, it's possible that they don't go forward with the mission because they could lose a helicopter, they could lose a crew. Nonetheless, Kolsch pushes forward. There's an American pilot on the ground in North Korea. He's going in to get him back. He drops beneath cloud cover and starts flying low and slow. You're looking for a pilot on the ground. You can't be going you know, max speed. You're not going to see this guy. What good is it to fly around in this dangerous position if you can't even find the pilot you're there for? So he slows down, starts taking fire. Helicopter's hit pretty early on, but he doesn't stop. He continues to fly until he identifies the pilot. He finds the pilot and lands and he has one crew member with him. So the other crew member is helping to load up this pilot. And they're, you know, the helicopters in 1950 are, are, I'm going to say rickety. I think maybe that gets the message across. They're, they're well built and everything, but they're very touchy. You know, even helicopters today are kind of touchy on, on making sure that they're, they're, capable of flying around the, the first variants in 1950, like they, they couldn't necessarily take a beating. They couldn't necessarily have the weight balance off very much. Even today, you know, we have to be very careful about how we load helicopters and, and where people sit sometimes in 1950. I mean, it was a major issue. They would have to carry extra weight in terms of rocks at times and then ditch those rocks and replace the rock with a person kind of thing. So um, they're trying to load up this pilot. Remember pretty severely wounded, burned, and as they're doing so, the helicopters hit more. And when they take off, the aircraft crashes into the hillside. Now, fortunately, Kolsch was able to pilot in a way to where all three survived the crash. But now, Kolsch, his, um, his crew member, and the downed American pilot that they went in to get are now on the ground in a crash site behind enemy lines. So... A common, what you'll see commonly is, is it's not just going to be an aircraft shot down and everybody walks away. There's going to be patrols out there to find survivors. 
or pull whatever they can out of the aircraft. Kolsch knows this. So he gets his men out of the wreckage. Again, miraculously, all three survived. He gets his men out of the wreckage and heads to the hills and spends three days moving around the hills, hiding from the North Vietnamese, North Korean and Chinese forces that are looking for this pilot. They know he's out there. They're going to find him. They're going to try to find him. After three days of hiding and treating wounds from the pilot that he was there originally to get, right? It's not like it's three fully able-bodied men moving around the mountainside. He's got somebody that's pretty seriously wounded. He's taken care of as well, but doesn't leave him behind. Carries him with him. The entire. After three days of hiding, they start to make their way towards American lines. As they're moving, after six days, nine days total after the crash, they're caught by enemy forces and eventually moved to a prisoner of war camp. In the prisoner of war camp, Kolsch is credited with never giving in, never giving any information to his captors, despite being beaten and tortured over and over again. And although there was probably some sort of wound from the helicopter crash. There's nothing called out as being severe, right? It's not anything crazy. And he was still able to move for nine days. So I don't know that the man was on the brink of uh, brink of death, but to give you an idea of the conditions and the way he was treated in that prisoner of war camp, he would only survive three months in captivity after beatings and torture nonstop would pass away on October 16th, 1951 at the age of 27 in a prisoner of war camp. But for his actions in seeking out and going forward with that rescue mission, doing everything he could, risking his life, eventually giving his life to try to rescue that downed American pilot on July 3rd, 1951, and then holding out and his bravery in captivity for the three months he spent in captivity, trying to keep his men motivated and serve as inspiration for those around him. Lieutenant Junior Grade John Cole should be awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.